Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 9 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. This is the second of three episodes covering chapter 5 called To the Ends of the Earth. In the last episode, I focused a lot on what was shared in the book Chasing Venus by Andrea Wolfe, where astronomers of the 18th century collaborated on watching the transit of Venus across the sun so they could better understand the distance between the Earth and the sun. This was the beginning of a global scientific effort at understanding the universe around us. In the last episode, I talked about how observers in the 11th century saw supernovas in the sky, and they didn't know what they were looking at, but they recorded it down and went on to die, never knowing what it was that they saw. But after the transit of Venus in the 18th century, people started coming together and sharing scientific information that benefited everyone. This open science that came with the 18th century transit of Venus started a trend, but it wasn't really continued on after that. Once both of the transits were done, that international collaboration wasn't quite there yet, and it didn't come back for over another century. This time, though, it would be greater than ever before. The focus of this episode is going to be around a man that you probably never heard of, named Carl Weiprecht or Weiprecht. And to me, I think that this is one of the greatest tragedies of science history because he should be celebrated way more than what he actually is. And hopefully in today's episode, I'm going to prove to you why. I also think you're going to see the connections between what I share with you today and what is shared in Andrea Wolf's book on chasing Venus. These people who lived over a century apart from each other all shared the belief that open science benefited everyone. Yet at the same time, there was that bitter backwash of what open science brought. When Chap went to Siberia and wrote his book about Russia and humiliated Catherine the Great. Suddenly, people like Humboldt weren't able to get into Russia as easily. And when Humboldt went and explored those Spanish colonies in South America, he came back and told critical information to the American government and helped inspire a revolution within the colonies with Simone Bolivar. 
We're going to see this theme of the altruism of open science and the backwash of national security and how they respond to it in this episode as well. And to really drive home how important Carl Weiprecht is in this episode, I want you to think for a minute on what would you do if all of a sudden you got a lot of international media attention and you didn't even try and get it. Let's say somebody caught on camera you saving a child from a burning building and it began trending and news outlets from all over the world reached out to you and wanted to talk to you. What would you likely do? Probably enjoy the media attention while you had it, while everybody praised you. But in those 15 minutes of fame, would you be quick enough to share a message that didn't just benefit you, but benefited everyone? And not only benefited everyone, but a message that challenged people to do something that was never done before. This is what makes Carl Weiprecht so special in my eyes. And I hope that after you hear what I have to share in this episode, I'll have convinced you on his importance as well. And you'll also see the connection to the scientists of the 18th century transit of Venus. And I'm going to share all of this information with the backdrop of the Arctic, one of the most deadly, beautiful, and mysterious places on the planet. Most people don't live in the Arctic for good reason. It can be alluring with things like the northern lights or icebergs and vast wilderness and wildlife that's up there. But quickly, things can turn in the weather blinding snowstorms, and you can be captured up there for months at a time if you're not careful. And without the proper provisions, you could die in hours. Going to the Arctic, especially in the 19th century, which is where most of this episode takes place, is not only a test of physical endurance, it's a test of mental endurance as well, because not only is it frigid and what you need to do to survive up there monotonous, but the level of nutrients you get are low, and constantly you're being tested with the same people around you, their grading personalities, while you are slowly being malnourished to death. Today I'm going to talk about several groups that got caught up there. Some of them live, and some of them don't. The only place that can really rival the Arctic is Antarctica, which I cover in another episode. But both places are so unique, with their six months of darkness and six months of light. It was the place that Pythias was trying to get to, before he had to turn around at Thule. And it's also, especially over the course of winter, the only place on Earth that feels 
like you're in outer space. In the images I share in my book, I try and give a picture of what the Arctic is like because while words can describe it somewhat, the visual stunningness of the Arctic is something to behold as well. I also end this episode on a cliffhanger, which I will finish up in the next episode, just because I felt like it would be too long to add it all together, and there's a lot of information that I share here. So if you have been enjoying things, please consider donating to the podcast. If you do, you can get a free PDF copy of this book. Also, if you want to follow me for updates, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world, and you can always reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. So with that, let's get through episode 9 of Ultima Thule and see how chapter 5, To the Ends of the Earth, continues. Chapter 5, Part 3, Wyprex Vision The race to observe the transit of Venus was an unprecedented global effort to understand the heavens, and together they discovered what is now known as the Astronomical Unit, or AU, the distance between the Earth and the Sun. They inspired governments to lead large scientific expeditions like the ones put forth by Catherine the Great and the British Royal Society in 1769, no longer mere individuals with a single area of expertise, but a collection of experts working together. As the 18th century gave way to the 19th century, expeditions like these continued onto more extreme corners of the planet. After the Pacific Ocean was mapped out, the only place left on Earth to explore were the most extreme environments on the planet, the poles of Earth. But to travel there even in the 19th century, was incredibly dangerous, and those who went often flirted with certain death, fighting disease and being locked in by ice. From there, the polar region would then determine their fate by either sacrificing their ship to the ice or finally releasing it to the liquid water again the following summer. The Poles did not just hold whatever final secrets the Earth had to offer. They were the key to unlocking our understanding of the secrets of the sky as well. Understanding the Earth at the Poles implicitly meant understanding our planet and how it interacts with space. The secret to spooky geomagnetism ghostly auroras, and the history of our planet lay in these extreme regions to the north and south. 
both business enterprises and scientific societies began to send expeditions to the poles in the 19th century for exploration and research, often portrayed with a sense of adventure. But the reality was often far less exciting, highly monotonous, and tended to be a test of human physical and psychological limitations. They would take some of the most technologically advanced ships of the day and stock them with years of supplies for travel in the north because there was a good chance that their ship would get caught in the Arctic ice for months, if not years. The monotony, disease, and isolation of these expeditions tested the willpower of the men who joined them and where poor leadership was almost a certain invitation for mutinous chaos and death. The infamous 1845 Franklin Expedition set the tone for 19th century polar expeditions with an ominous and eerie start. The two ships involved in the expedition were aptly named the Erebus and the Terror where together they sailed into the uncharted Arctic in search of the elusive Northwest Passage and were never seen or heard from again. From the grisly remains that were found from the expedition years later, we know that they were caught in the unpredictable pack ice of the Arctic Ocean for years as the men waited for each summer in hopes of the ice melt freeing them. But as each summer wore on and fall approached anew, the crew found themselves locked away from the rest of the world again with increasing desperation and their sanity slowly leeching away. Lead poisoning, disease, and poor decisions led the hapless crew to abandon their frozen ships. Then the scurvy-ridden and starved men slowly died off in the barren wastes of rocky Arctic islands, likely resorting to mutiny and cannibalism. The most famous fictionalized account of what happened during the Franklin Expedition has been written by Dan Simmons and adapted as the first season of the television series The Terror. Personally, I haven't read the book, but I do highly recommend the show. It's some of the best acting I've seen. The book and miniseries depict a slow descent into chaos, madness, and hopelessness. While the full details of the Franklin Expedition will never be known, this tragic nightmare haunted every Arctic expedition that left port ever after. And yet, the mystical North continued to beckon more explorers with its breathtaking and dangerous siren's call. The edge of the world was both beautiful and promising, and yet, at the same time, treacherously lethal. Another one of these missions in the name of science, glory, and profit ran into similar trouble as the Franklin Expedition 
and also found themselves stranded among the pack ice of the Arctic. Remembered today as the 1872-1874 Austro-Hungarian Arctic Expedition, it was established by the Vienna Geographical Society in hopes of finding a northeast passage to the Pacific over Russia. They chose Karl Weiprecht, an Austro-Hungarian naval officer, as the captain of the mission. The ship was named Admiral Tegetov, after one of Austria's famous and most adept admirals, and whom Weiprecht had served under in war and admired greatly. Weiprecht, now a battle-tested naval officer, led the expedition with the equally talented Julius von Payer, an adept army officer. It wasn't unusual for these missions to have both army and navy serving on them, but when things became difficult, the mistrust between the military branches could sometimes add to the friction. The Tegetov expedition started out well enough in 1872, as it headed northeast into the sea where Pythias, that Greek explorer over 2,000 years previous, had to turn around after finding Thule. Despite two millennia, the Arctic remained just as much of a glimmering enigma as it did to the ancient Greeks. It was only now, in the 19th century, that Europeans finally gathered the willpower to penetrate its heart. But by the fall, the Tegetov found itself trapped in an ice flow from the north, just as the Erebus and Terror had done in the 1845 Franklin expedition, likely not far from the mind of anyone on the ship. Likely stuck somewhere north of the desolate barren sea, they were too far north to expect anybody to come to their rescue. The men prepared to buckle down for the months-long frigid and dark winter as their ship spun aimlessly locked up in the ice of the Arctic Circle, somewhere north of Russia. Prisoners to the sea ice, Wyprecht, Payer, and the crew had to wait until the following spring to see if their ship would thaw from the ice. Despite being held in the grip of the Arctic, the men of the Tegetov were not idle. They began collecting ice samples and minerals, recorded what they noticed in the sky, and collected useful scientific information that was now standard for such missions since the transit of Venus a century before. One of the most striking observations in the sky during the eternal night of winter was the mysterious colorful glow known as the auroras, also called the northern lights. The auroras gave the Arctic an eerie beauty, especially since it was not well understood at the time on what caused them. Today, we know that dangerous solar radiation crosses the 93 million miles of space from the sun and gets caught up in the magnetosphere of the Earth, providing us with a ghostly iridescent display of light in pink, green, yellow, blue, and purple, 
offering a brief respite from the dark, monochromatic landscape of the Arctic winter. But beneath the gossamer glow of the auroras, the men stuck on the Tegetov were struggling with life and death. The Tegetov was their best chance at survival, but the ice surrounding the ship was only growing thicker as the nights grew longer and the temperatures plummeted. The men worked constantly to bring the ship from being fully frozen in because if the ice took grip, it could tear the ship to splinters. But all their work was ultimately in vain, as it wasn't long before the Tegatov was captured in the Arctic's frozen clutches. The situation became more desperate and precarious by the day as the ice pressed closer to the planks, having the potential to crush the ship to matchsticks. But the Tegatov was able to hold together and gave the men a place to live as they drifted along aimlessly wherever the massive ice sheet took them. But as winter turned to summer, the ice refused to release its grip on the Tegatov. What sinking feeling the crew must have felt each day as autumn crept closer until, once again, resigning themselves to enduring another Arctic winter, never seeing the open ocean that summer at all. No doubt, the specter of the Franklin expedition sat ever more uncomfortably in everyone's mind as their food supply continued to dwindle in the frigid monotony. Ultimately, they would be forced to live in the frozen Tegatov for two entire years, but the supplies and ship could only last them for so long. Wyprecht and the men of the Tegatov had to resort to more extreme measures to find food as scurvy began to set in, covering their body in bruises and open wounds while their gums began to bleed and teeth started to fall out. They fell to hunting polar bears with success and killed dozens over the course of the time they were stranded in the Arctic. At one point, the pack ice had them drift within sight of Franz Joseph Land, a group of islands so far north of Russia that they were only discovered for the first time during Wyprecht's polar expedition. Payer was a cartographer, mountaineer, and painter, in addition to being the army officer in charge of any land exploration on this mission. He and a team explored Franz Joseph Land with one mission lasting at least a month, while Wyprecht and his crew continued to uphold life on the ship. The daring exploratory mission reached a climax when they almost lost a man down a crevasse, having to hang there for hours above his impending death before finally being rescued and returned safely to the Tegatov. But after two years of being stuck in ice with dangerously low supplies, Wyprecht ordered the ship to finally be abandoned in 1874. 
The men packed up rescue boats and began to sledge south to look for open water. The trek that followed took over three months and covered over 130 miles across blinding and barren ice sheets without any sight of liquid water. Scurvy and sun blindness impaired the already poor health of the men who knew the likelihood of survival was next to none. Then the day came where the crew once again found the open waters of the Arctic Ocean, reinvigorating and emboldening their spirits to push on. Julius von Payer even did a really great painting of this moment called Never Return, where the crew had to decide collectively to push forward and forget about returning back to their ship. So now, instead of carrying their boats, they could let their boats carry them. The long, thin islands of Novaya Zemlya, shaped like a krill on a map and found well north of Russian Siberia, guided the emaciated crew south and west slowly back toward home. As they traveled along the icy, rocky, and mountainous shores of Novaya Zemlya, they would have traveled through a barren cape that looked much like the rest, called Sukhoi Nos, or Dry Nose. Little did the dying crew know that less than 100 years into the future, Sukhoi Nos would be the site of the largest nuclear bomb detonation ever tested, Tsar Bomba, which was dropped along the shores of the island by the Soviet Union in 1961. That this remote location could be a drop site for the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated showed just how desolate the area was even a century later. Eventually, the crew reached the southernmost parts of Novaya Zemlya, where they were finally found by two Russian fishing boats who ferried the exhausted crew back to civilization. A total of 812 days had passed since they left for their expedition in 1872, and now it was the year 1874, and Wyprex's crew had only lost one man who died by tuberculosis. Their story was an instant international sensation and was celebrated as a triumph of mankind conquering the untamed Arctic. The polar regions of the planet had stymied the civilized world since the beginning. So beautiful, mysterious, and alluring yet so very, very deadly. That a team of sailors and soldiers could be sent up there and be considered lost for two years, only to have nearly every one of them return alive, showed humanity's ability to persevere even in the most severe and unforgiving landscapes. But Karl Weiprecht was not satisfied with merely keeping his life and living off of his universal love and fame. 
he was still burdened by the failure of the mission. Part of Wypruk's mission was commercial in nature, to find a northeast passage, just as the Franklin expedition was tasked with finding the northwest passage before them. The purpose was so that Europeans could find a potentially faster alternative shipping route, even if they were only open part of the year. But it wasn't the fact that Weiprecht never found the Northeast Passage that bothered him, but instead what ate away at Weiprecht was how they had to leave behind so much precious scientific data in exchange for saving their own lives. He was only able to rescue a mere fraction of what was collected over the course of the two years in the Arctic, leaving behind troves of important information from Earth's final frontier with the Tegetoff, which was never seen again. Weiprecht understood better than most that studying the Arctic could deliver invaluable scientific information that would help humanity better understand both the Earth and the universe. More troubling for Weiprecht was that even if he had been successful in saving all of his data, he still saw significant problems with how useful it could actually be. Weiprecht had spent months at a time in the only place on Earth that gives the closest feeling to being in outer space. That far up north, there is less atmosphere between the ground and space, and in the winter months, after the sun had long disappeared from the horizon, the Arctic becomes enmeshed with the glistening black vault above. Aside from the wind and cracking ice, there is silence, no insects chirping along, no owls or bullfrogs, no human bustle. Just vast, empty space pressing against a frozen wasteland as far as the eye can see. A view that is likely repeated across countless icy worlds spanned across the universe. Stars that would be barely perceptible anywhere else in the world can easily be seen by the naked eye that far north. Trapped with nothing but one's own thoughts, it's likely that Weiprecht often pondered the meaning of what he was staring up into and how the Arctic helped reveal it all. With a front row seat to the vast dark ocean above for 24 hours in a day for nearly four months straight with death lurking in all directions, it seems impossible not to have existential thoughts. So it was there in the mid-1870s where Weiprecht knew that he was surrounded by a land untouched by humans, pure nature, and yet he lost the chance to bring a piece of it back to civilization. He had collected precious clues to the history of the Earth and the secrets of the universe, and yet nearly 
all of it ended up adrift on a lost ship that was last seen being swallowed by the polar ice, jealously guarding its secrets. Wyprex's scientific collections likely found their way to the bottom of the Arctic Ocean in a busted hull. But even if Wyprecht were to have saved all of his data, he knew that it was barely scratching the surface of the secrets of the expansive Arctic. It was an isolated set of data, not nearly enough to come away with any valid conclusions in that vast of a wilderness. Wyprecht must have realized that one measly polar expedition at a time, disjointed with varying methods, accuracy, and instruments that was always secondary to survival, was not going to lead to the quality of data needed for science. Wyprecht believed there needed to be a more coordinated effort to study the poles, both north and south. He knew that even when someone went back to the Arctic, that they'd use a totally different set of instruments and even use different methods of collection, complicating any useful comparisons or conclusions between his and any other expedition. Sporadic polar expeditions just weren't enough to collect the amount of data needed to ensure good information on meteorology, geomagnetism, and the auroras. It was this realization that frustrated him, even at the height of his glory. In less than a year after his return, Wyprecht was advocating for circumpolar research stations because he envisioned what a priceless boon such a project would be to all disciplines of science dealing with space, weather, and the Earth. His harrowing expedition on the Tegetov made him a voice that scientists of Europe were eager to hear. And by 1879, serious efforts were being made to fulfill Wyprecht's vision. Wyprecht tirelessly advocated for an international investment into science and lamented over the lack of conclusions that could be made from his data alone. Quote, But whatever interest all these observations may possess, they do not possess that scientific value even supported by a long column of figures, which under other circumstances might have been the case. They only furnish us with a picture of the extreme effects of the forces of nature in the Arctic regions, but leave us completely in the dark with respect to their causes. End quote. Wyprecht also questioned humanity's priorities, quote, Immense sums were being spent and much hardship endured for the privilege of placing names in different languages on ice-covered promontories, but where the increase in human knowledge played a very secondary role, end quote. 
So Wyprecht lamented that whatever data was collected meant nothing until there was an abundance of it. And that would only be made possible by an international effort to go out and collect it. This is what he meant when he said they only furnish us with a picture of the extreme effects but give us nothing in regard to their causes. He then bemoaned the vain efforts by mankind to claim and name far-removed Arctic wastelands while only marginally thinking of the advancement that a coordinated scientific effort could bring. Weiprecht was old when he started his scientific crusade, and despite his efforts of getting international momentum on creating multiple polar research stations, he died in 1881 without seeing his vision come to fruition. Chapter 5, Part 4, The International Polar and Geophysical Years Despite his death in 1881, Wyprex's efforts did not go in vain. In 1882, his dream of a coordinated international scientific effort came true with the first international polar year. The first international polar year was the first time scientists from around the world had really come together since the transit of Venus in the 1760s. It turned out that the international polar year was delayed until after Wyprecht's death so that it could once again coincide with the transit of Venus, making the passage of the planet across the sun a central feature of this new global scientific effort. In a bizarre cosmic pull, another planet once again brought people closer together on our own planet. But compared to the 1760s, this renewed international effort was going to be much more comprehensive. The countries that agreed to commit to scientific research for the good of humanity were Austria-Hungary, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Netherlands, Norway, Russia, Sweden, United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. The focus of what was to be collected was manifold, geological, meteorological, astronomical, and biological measurements would be taken across the globe and shared with one another openly, just as they did after the 18th century transit of Venus. The Twelve Nations trekked into the polar regions to set up the first collaborative research stations all across the poles, including 13 in the polar north and 2 in Antarctica. This time, though, 
These were not ships frozen into the ice, collecting isolated data while worrying about how to survive. True to Yprex's vision, these were actual stations that were to be built with the sole purpose of collecting data. Survival still remained a primary concern at each desolate station, far removed from the rest of the world but their locations would be known, could be checked up upon, and could be resupplied. And despite each of the stations being isolated from each other, there was a coordinated effort between the cooperating countries on what data to collect and how to collect it so that after the first international polar year was over, the scientists from each of these pioneering nations could study them and determine some causes of why things were the way they were, rather than merely the effects. Yprex's spirit loomed large over this global effort. The furthest north of all of the outposts for the first international polar year was the American Fort Conger, located on the world's 10th largest island, just west of Greenland, known as Ellesmere. The fact that this outpost lay the deepest in the Arctic Circle out of any nation participating in the International Polar Year was a point of pride for both the post-Civil War United States and its expedition leader, Adolphus Greeley. Known for holding strict order but having no experience in extreme weather, Greeley was one of the main advocates for the United States to participate in the International Polar Year, hoping that this northern expedition, in the name of science, could help him stand apart from other officers in an army focused on subduing the Indians in the American West. For the first time in the history of the world, the United States was starting to participate as an international leader in science, and Greeley would be at its forefront. Fort Conger was not only the most northern outpost for the International Polar Year, but it was the most northern outpost in the history of the world, beating the previous record held by Great Britain three centuries earlier. In late summer of 1881, Lieutenant Greeley and his expedition of 25 men had sailed to Lady Franklin Bay, named for the wife of the missing captain of the Franklin expedition earlier that century, and began to assemble their new fort. They were lucky to have reached this far north by ship, having made their way through the treacherous Cape Sabine, an ice-choked body of water between Greenland and Ellesmere that had daunted even the most experienced captains, making it a sort of last waypoint of civilization. 
provisioned with 350 tons of supplies, with a resupply ship to come back the following summer, Fort Conger was assembled without any significant setbacks and run under the strict supervision of Greeley. There are actually some high-definition videos of Fort Conger on YouTube now, and I have put one of them in my sources if you'd like to take a look at what it looks like in the modern day. The Arctic weather has not been kind to the camp, but it is an interesting piece of history to look at. Anyway, they did their part for the international polar year by taking constant meteorological and geophysical measurements while exploring the northern reaches of Ellesmere Island for the first time for the civilized world. Together, they discovered Lake Hazen, one of the largest and most northern lakes in the world as well as the Greeley Ford, named for the first lieutenant himself. One of their crowning exploratory achievements was reaching as far north as 83 degrees and 24 minutes, the new world record that was still being measured under Hipparchus's base 60 latitude and longitude system. They sheltered at Fort Conger, collecting data over the sunless winter into 1882, Polaris far overhead and nearly pinned at the zenith, while the rest of the universe spun dizzily around it during the perpetual night. Across both poles, the same data was being collected at all of the International Polar Year stations throughout the new year of 1882 and into spring and summer. But by late summer of 1882, with the sun high over Fort Conger for months now, it became clear that the previously planned resupply ship was not going to be coming. But this was a known possibility considering their isolated location and the dangers of Cape Sabine. So Greeley ordered the contingency plan to be put in place to survive a second winter. Despite the boast of how the United States was breaking international records on exploring the Arctic, this is where the cracks in Greeley's Lady Franklin Bay expedition started to show. The reality was the expedition was both underfunded and misappropriated, while the crews sent to resupply Fort Conger were both inept and unlucky. Finding Cape Sabine to be unpassable or the resupply crews unwilling to take the risk, the supplies never even came close to reaching the fort. Even worse, Greeley's isolated outfit, hundreds of miles north from any semblance of civilization, had nearly no collective experience in the Arctic and had begun to fall victim to petty scheming against one another almost from the start. 
Greeley was overbearing and despised by the men that he commanded. He stripped his second lieutenant of command shortly after the mission began, and the group's physician actively plotted against Greeley. Despite the tension between leadership and crew, there was enough provisions to get the men through the second long, dark winter, which brought the expedition into the year 1883, when another resupply ship was set to arrive over the summer. The summer of 1883 must have been filled with hope, as the men continually checked the bay, searching for one of America's ships coming to resupply them. But as the sun slowly sank closer to the horizon, with each passing day and the possibility of a third winter looming over them, it was clear that, once again, no one was coming. Greeley decided that if they were going to survive, that they were going to have to save themselves. There was a potential contingency plan put in place for this, where there would be food deposits that were laid for them along the route south. But unfortunately, the resupply ships never put those in place either. So, with low morale and low provisions, the men collected all of their scientific data for the past two years and abandoned Fort Conger. The autumn equinox was quickly approaching as the sun appeared a little lower in the sky each day. Another six months of frigid darkness loomed before them. They headed south on a small steamboat, which eventually ran out of gas, so they continued their journey on an ice floe. The trip was long and arduous, but without the same luck or discipline as Wyprex's team, the men began to drop due to malnourishment. When one man stole some food for the second time, Greeley had him executed as a lesson to the rest of the group. While Greeley attempted to keep order, written accounts have him frequently tucked away in a sleeping bag when some of the more difficult decisions needed to be made, forcing other members to step up in his stead. As they worked their way south, emaciated and at each other's throats, the day of the autumn equinox occurred. How must these frozen and bitter men have felt as they watched the sun disappear from the horizon with that sinking feeling of dread coming with each darkening day? In the Arctic Circle, when the last glimmer of sunshine sinks below the horizon, it glows just beyond the edge for days afterwards, like the embers of a fire that can't be reignited for months. They were now hundreds of miles away from Fort Conger and almost completely forgotten by the rest of the world in an endless tundra of rocks, ocean, and ice. 
They pressed south as the dusk dwindled daily and the temperatures began to plunge to new lows. It was in these darkening days of winter that they finally reached Cape Sabine, the same area where the resupply ships turned around the previous two summers. For the Greeley crew, it would have to be close enough for a rescue crew to find them, since they could travel no further. They built a makeshift tent base called Camp Clay, and proceeded to eke out an existence amid the cold and desolate winter on moss, candle wax, and animal waste, with men dropping one by one in a recurring eternal nightmare, daylight now a forgotten memory. The year 1884 rolled around, and the International Polar Year had long been over. Scientists from all of the research stations had been sharing their data with each other for years now, and the American team had been considered all but tragically lost. Back in the States, the government had essentially forgotten them, only guilted into action by Greeley's wife when she went to the media with the story similar to how Lady Franklin had to rescue a rally team, which was ultimately unsuccessful, for her own lost husband. One rescue mission had already failed with the loss of a ship, making another rescue attempt all the less appealing to the federal government of the United States. But due to Mrs. Greeley's inexhaustible effort, Another ship made its way to see if they could push through Cape Sabine up into the northern reaches of Ellesmere and see what was left of Fort Conger. And it was during this rescue mission that the Greeley party was discovered when the ship reached Cape Sabine and found the wretched Camp Clay. Out of the original 25 men, only seven remained, but they were in such poor condition that one died during the rescue attempt. The six survivors, including Greeley, were brought back to America with a mixed reaction. Despite having preserved all of the scientific data for the International Polar Year, the rescuers relayed what they had found at the desolate Camp Clay. They claimed that there was evidence that the men survived the grueling third winter by cannibalization as each died off, once again reminiscent of the tragic Franklin expedition 40 years earlier. This news horrified many. Despite the dark shadow of Greeley's International Polar Year expedition, in the years that followed, he still got the recognition that he was looking for, and rose through the ranks from first lieutenant to major general, and on his 95th birthday, he was awarded the Medal of Honor in 1935. Ultimately, Greeley was buried in Arlington National Cemetery after dying of old age, many years after the mission.
The Lady Franklin Bay Expedition will never be remembered for the heroism and camaraderie that defined Yprex, but it's likely that even if Yprex had to travel much further, his crew would have found themselves in a similar tragic position. It was likely that it was teamwork that helped Yprex's crew to survive as long as they did while the combination of the overbearing nature of Greeley and the antagonistic crew cost them all dearly. In difficult circumstances, teamwork can be the deciding factor when all hangs in the balance. But it was the data that was retrieved for the International Polar Year from the Greeley Expedition as well as from the similarly harrowing expeditions from other countries around the globe that were finally able to inform science in the way that Weyprecht had dreamed. Wind, temperature, barometric pressure, sea level pressure, ocean currents, auroras, tides, astronomical observations, and, of course, the transit of Venus were all recorded to determine how the Earth functioned on a global scale and its relationship to space. To this day, the data collected by the Greeley Expedition and others of the International Polar Year are still essential to modern science since they're now the earliest global scientific data on record particularly in the area of climate. The success of the first International Polar Year resulted in another, even greater, second International Polar Year in 1932, of which 44 countries participated in. Although the second International Polar Year was much larger than the first, it was hindered by having been planned to happen right in the middle of the Great Depression, which led to cuts in some of the more ambitious projects. Then, afterwards, as World War II descended on Europe, countless documents evidence, and data from the second international polar year were lost in the destruction of the war. For these reasons, the second international polar year was not as special as the first. But Yprex's vision that culminated into the reality of the first international polar year changed the face of science ever after. It was the first time since the 1760s transit of Venus that nations across the world put aside national or economic interests in place of a greater scientific purpose to benefit all of humanity. Scientists from nearly every discipline benefited from the International Polar Year expeditions. 
The 1882 and 1932 international polar years were essentially the prototype on how nations would ultimately work together in Antarctica and on the International Space Station. Nations would continue to share facilities and work with each other in polar regions moving forward ever after setting aside almost all international disputes in the name of human progress. This type of scientific work has kept the Poles largely free of political ownership into the 21st century. Gone were the days where a single man could hold the final say on a scientific topic for over a thousand years like Hipparchus had done. A new day where teams of scientists from across the world could work together now reigned. In the spirit of Karl Weyprecht, a man who advocated for international scientific unity in an age where business and territorial disputes were driving the conversation, people from nations across the world came together to study something bigger than their personal interests. In the spirit of Thales and the Olive Presses, the purpose of this scientific work wasn't primarily to profit, but instead to understand our place in the universe. The concept of science being an open profession to anyone with a passion and willingness to follow best practices had not always been the case. It was the international polar years that set the tone of the scientific work for the 20th century, opening up the sciences to anyone. And gone were the days where science was left to elite, aloof, and well-funded pretentious individuals or organizations. The late 19th and early 20th centuries brought science to the common person. Then, on April 5, 1950, of the Gregorian calendar, a British geophysicist by the name of Sidney Chapman had been invited to the home of American nuclear physicist James Van Allen as the guest of honor. Chapman was no ordinary geophysicist. He had traveled across the world working with all kinds of universities, and by the time he died, he had published 450 scientific papers, which are just the sort of accomplishments that would get one an invite into the home of a well-regarded nuclear physicist. One of Chapman's most famous works was his study on the behavior of thermodynamics of gases. He is also the man to have coined the term geomagnetism to describe the Earth's mysterious magnetic energy that influenced both compasses and auroras alike. Van Allen would have a storied career as well, particularly in the development of rocket science, having invented a raccoon, a cross between a rocket and a balloon, 
to send scientific instruments up to the edge of the atmosphere in a cost-effective way. These were men who pushed the boundaries of humanity's knowledge of the universe and the sort of people who could appreciate a discussion on the meaning of it all. And that sort of curiosity is what brought together Chapman and other guests to Van Allen's home on that fateful day in 1950. Van Allen played host to a small collection of scientists who had a shared interest in further cooperation of international scientific research. When the question was posed by attending physicist Lloyd Berkner on whether it was time to have another international polar year, Chapman enthusiastically agreed and took up the cause with Berkner. Often considered the third international polar year, Chapman was a sort of 1950s version of Weiprecht or Delisle in the sense that he had the clout and respect to lead the third, or fourth if you count the 18th century transit of Venus, global effort of its kind. Berkner pointed out that the maximum sunspot cycle would take place in 1957, and with seven years to plan for this unique solar phenomenon, they could coordinate a host of other international studies as well. With a date now set, the men had the daunting task of getting the rest of the world on board and it went better than ever could have been expected. When 1957 came around, the new polar year event included 67 participant countries and over 4,000 research stations across the entire planet, and not just at the poles, but all over the world. In the time leading up to what would become the greatest international scientific endeavor to date, participating countries had a lot of time to test instruments and work on ways to standardize the instruments and data used, the scientific rigor that would have made Carl Weiprecht proud. But this new polar year event was so globally expansive that calling it the third international polar year didn't feel accurate anymore. So it was retitled as the International Geophysical Year to cover the breadth of science being done in concert across the planet, which included many nonpolar locations. By the mid-20th century, scientific collaboration had come a long way since the first effort for the transit of Venus nearly 200 years prior. In addition to work at the poles, there would be research stations on the equator, as well as parallel longitudinal locations connecting pole to pole in Europe and Africa, the Americas, and East Asia. 
Determining the longitude was no longer the seemingly impossible task it once was in the 18th century, and was now determined with ease. The event even brought the Soviet Union and the United States to work together despite being in the depths of the Cold War. Just as Russia and the U.S. had worked together during the first international polar year. The loss of most of the scientific data in the Second World War from the Second International Polar Year was another important topic to address during the International Geophysical Year. The only way all of the countries were willing to work together on this would be if all of the countries had equal access to the data collected for any part of the International Geophysical Year. This led to the establishment of world data centers that would host all of the collected data from the International Geophysical Year in all countries and allow anyone access to it for the price of printing and mailing. This way, all of the scientific information could be collected and protected, so even when wars might hit one data center in one part of the world, the rest would still be standing to protect the information for posterity. These world data centers have evolved into the International Science Council's World Data System where about 135 scientific member organizations continue to preserve the world's scientific data for everything from astronomy to immunology to economics. Just as in the 1760s, humanity was still putting the value of scientific knowledge above the petty wars of nations. In addition to studying sunspots and preserving data, the International Geophysical Year finally gave Antarctica the intensive focus that it deserved, providing us with the first real detailed information of the ice-covered continent. Results from the International Geophysical Year measured the depth of the ice and found that 90% of Earth's ice is on or around Antarctica, which holds about 68% of the world's fresh water on top of it. The International Geophysical Year set the standards for the Antarctic Treaty the following year turning the continent into the first-ever international nuclear-free territory, with the primary purpose being for research, echoing Wyprex's vision from nearly a century prior. The International Geophysical Year also produced the discovery of the Van Allen radiation belts. Bands of radiation surrounding the Earth integral to modern electronic communication, discovered by the very scientist whose home the International Geophysical Year was first proposed in. Further research into plate tectonics, ocean geography, geology, seismology, meteorology, 
and other scientific fields also occurred during the unprecedented International Geophysical Year. But the main event of it all was the internationally agreed-upon launching of the satellites into outer space for the first time in the history of the world. It was the International Geophysical Year that facilitated the development of the first man-made objects to be sent into space, something that is not as well known as it should be. It was the sort of moment that the history of all humanity has dreamed about for millennia. For tens of thousands of years, Going back to the earliest humans, the desire to know what truly lay above our heads has captivated us. And the best part, because the launching of such satellites by the likes of the United States and the Soviet Union were part of this International Geophysical Year event, all of the data would be accessible to all nations around the world. Everything from rocket design to data emitted from the satellite would be compiled for the world data centers to be shared amongst all of humanity for the benefit of humanity. Just like the first international polar year in 1882, the International Geophysical Year was a competition in the spirit of science. So on October 4, 1957, it finally happened. The first satellite in the history of our species was launched into orbit by the Soviet Union. Named Sputnik 1, or Satellite 1, it was a celebratory event for all of the scientists who collaborated on making the International Geophysical Year happen a human achievement unmatched in the history of the world. A polished metal sphere less than two feet across with four antennas sticking out of it, the first satellite traveled around the entire planet broadcasting basic radio pulses that provided data on the upper atmosphere and the ionosphere. All of this information would be shared between all of the scientists of Earth, making it the height of achievement for open science. But the collective joy of such a monumental milestone quickly soured with deep suspicion when it was discovered that the Soviets had broken the agreement of the International Geophysical Year. The agreement proclaimed that not only the data from the satellite be made public, but also the design of the rocket that put the satellite into space. And it was soon discovered that the Soviets had no intention of sharing the method that they used to send Sputnik into space. The rocket was military-grade technology, and the Soviets decided that it was best kept classified, going against the agreement of the International Geophysical Year. 
The United States quickly felt pressured to respond, but the American satellite was not yet ready. It took until the end of January 1958 for the United States to launch the Explorer satellite under similar parameters, leaving the rocket technology classified while the data from the satellite was open to be viewed by the scientific community. It was this break with the International Geophysical Year that put in motion the infamous space race that led to the Soviets putting the first man in space and the Americans putting the first man on the moon. For those who helped create the International Geophysical Year, it was mused that the space race started in Van Allen's living room on the day the International Geophysical Year was conceived by Berkner, Chapman, and the rest. But it was the breaking of the International Geophysical Year Agreement, rather than the collaboration dictated by it, that brought forth such fierce competition between the two superpowers of the mid-20th century. After the launching of Sputnik and Explorer, the focus became about who could develop their scientific technology in secret better, rather than sharing that knowledge openly with the world. Perhaps remembering incidents like that of Chap in Siberia or Humboldt in the Spanish colonies, the Soviet Union recognized how scientific information can be used by a competitor for political advantage. Missile technology in the mid-20th century was the primary indicator on who was the most dominant on a global scale. Opening that information up to the Americans and the world would have put them at a political disadvantage, and so they broke the rules of the International Geophysical Year and thus prompted the United States to do the same. The openness held up as a virtue of the International Geophysical Year began a shadow war using the openness of international scientific ventures to hide military developments in the war for global dominance. And the Soviet Union was not the only country that used scientific research as cover during the Cold War. The United States had its fair share of intrigue and secret scientific projects that also directly violated the agreement of the International Geophysical Year. And perhaps the biggest was on the island of Greenland.
thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.